Welcome to the Therapy Insights Podcast. This is Megan Berg, and I'm a speech pathologist in Western Montana. This podcast explores speech, occupational, and physical therapy through the lens of mental health and counseling. Today, I am thrilled to share an interview that I got to do with Dr. Mark Harness and Risa Clemmy. I first came across their work when I was reading an article about how the Washington Department of Corrections is one of the first state correctional agencies in the United States to implement a system-level response to traumatic brain injuries among the incarcerated population. As far as I can tell, they're the only state to have done this so far, but if you're listening and know of another state, let us know because we'd love to talk with them. And the reason I loved this conversation so much is because it's all about transformation. In particular, it's all about transforming big systems that have a major impact on our society. I think so many of us are looking around at the systems that we're living in and we're seeing and wanting and knowing that things have to change. From healthcare to our food system to systemic racism to confronting dualistic binary views, we are ready for a lot of shifts. And within the criminal justice system until now, there has been no systematic way of attempting to identify and support survivors of traumatic brain injuries, which, as we know, can lead to significant behavior and personality changes that put people at risk for entering the criminal justice system and once inside, prevent them from fully healing and reintegrating into the community. This conversation reminds me of a quote by Frank Tiger who said, listening to both sides of a story will convince you that there is more to a story than both sides. What you're about to hear is the story of how massive, seemingly immovable systems can be transformed bit by bit to bring us all closer to our collective humanity. So I'll tell you a little bit about our guests and then we'll dive into the conversation. Enjoy. Risa Clemmy has worked for the Washington State Department of Corrections for 26 years, serving in a variety of capacities including policy coordinator, public information officer, legal liaison, and currently serves as the statewide ADA compliance manager. She has managed and participated in numerous project management assignments and has seen firsthand the challenges of moving a large ship in the direction of change. Prior to her career in the corrections field, she was employed as the Director of Administrative Services for a private nonprofit community mental health center in Seattle, Washington for 10 years and worked for the American Red Cross. Her education includes undergraduate college and private school for religious studies. Her passion is project management and problem solving to help people live a fuller, more productive and independent life. When she is not working, you will find her in the great outdoors, volunteering, and playing with her grandchildren. And our other guest today is Dr. Mark Harness, who is an associate professor in rehabilitation medicine, director of the Center for Technology and Disability Studies, and director of the University of Washington Disability Studies Program. His research focuses on knowledge translation, assistive technology, and accessible design. He teaches in both the Disability Studies Program and the Rehabilitation Medicine Doctoral Program with an emphasis on knowledge translation and disability policy. Currently, he is PI of the Nidler-funded ADA Knowledge Translation Center and PI of a Nidler-funded Knowledge Translation Grant that is focused on translating evidence about traumatic brain injury to practice within the Washington State Department of Corrections. 
He is also co-investigator on the Nidler-funded RRTC on employment of people with physical disabilities, where he leads a project focused on developing decision aids to support people with disabilities to request reasonable accommodations. Uh, I've worked in the field of disability for over 20 years at this point. I started um, in special education and did work really focused on curriculum development for students with learning disabilities um, and was in that space for about 10-ish years or so. Um, and then um, made a jump um, partially, uh, you know, based on wanting to be back in Washington State um, to a position at the University of Washington um, that focused more on assistive technology and adults and, um, and morphed over time to a focus on something, it's kind of a jargony term, but uh, something called knowledge translation. And knowledge translation is just really kind of evidence to practice. Um, it's about how do we take uh, what we know and put it into practice in the field. And so we uh, saw that there was a grant uh, opportunity available that was focused on knowledge translation. And it required that you take some prior work that had been funded by NIDLER, the National Institute on Disability and Independent Living and Rehabilitation Research, um, to take work that you had done for that um, funder and uh, engage in a knowledge translation process. And so we had done some work focused on traumatic brain injury, um, where we developed a number of evidence-based fact sheets. Um, and then one of our team members had worked pretty extensively with the Washington State Department of Corrections in a different space focused on uh, ADA compliance and accessibility of the built environment. And so uh, we kind of merged our, our connections and we wrote a grant um, where we uh, proposed to um, try to uh, bring evidence about TBI into the Department of Corrections in order to improve interactions between incarcerated individuals with TBI and um, frontline correctional staff. So that was the, that was the proposal. Um, and we were, of course, funded. And we can talk more about that later. Uh, but that's, that's the trajectory for how I got to this point. Wow. Thank you. And Risa? Hi there. Um, my trajectory was a little bit different than Mark's because I, um, when I came into this project, um, we were about a year into the grant. And um, so I kind of inherit, I guess you could say I kind of inherited the project. However, um, I have a long history of working for private nonprofit agencies. Uh, both with the American Red Cross um, and with the Community Mental Health Center in uh, Seattle, Washington. Um, and that really kind of prepared me for my 26-year uh, career with the Department of Corrections because I kind of consider state service as a private nonprofit <laughs> in many ways um, because we are a service industry um, providing services to the state of Washington citizens. Um, I have been the ADA compliance manager since 2016. Um, and as noted, I, I inherited this project, which was about a year into the grant. And um, once I learned of uh, what we were doing um, and had some opportunities to talk with the folks from the University of Washington, uh, I was very, very energized and uh, developed a vision for where I thought the project should go. 
Um, and I think some of um, the visionary things that uh, I shared with our folks in, from the University of Washington is what propelled us to uh, end up with a successful pro project and one that has um, become now sustainable. Fantastic. And I just want to point out to the listeners that you shared with me that your daughter is an OT. Is that correct? That is correct. I have a daughter who's an occupational <laughs> therapist. So we're all in this together. <laughs> Excellent. And I, like, I'm not entirely sure how I stumbled across what you guys were doing. But once I started reading about it, I was like, this is amazing. And I know like one of the articles mentioned that this is Washington is the first state to have kind of a comprehensive TBI management program for people who are incarcerated. Is that still the truth? Has, have any other states stepped up to try to do this? We, th we think we are. If anybody out there can prove us wrong, then please, please touch base because we'd love to hear what you've done. Yeah. Uh, I, I think that there's been work done in juvenile justice. There's been work uh, focused on community uh, reentry programs, uh, so from prison to community. Um, and uh, there's definitely a lot of work happening um, in community settings, um, some of which connect to previously incarcerated individuals. But I, I, I don't know, and Risa doesn't know, uh, about people who are working on uh, currently incarcerated uh, men and women. And what do you think? Um, what do you think the barriers are? Like, are there just more resources for juvenile programs where there's more of an interest to help people at a younger age? Or like, why isn't this a universal value? Well, I have an opinion. Um, <laughs> Risa probably has a, a different opinion, but I, I, think, uh, I think there are a lot of reasons, actually. I think this is a hard population to work with. I think that... Um, there are lots of other spaces where people feel more comfortable and have more access. Uh, I think departments of correction are um, perhaps legitimately risk averse. They often are yeah. really targeted for um, any errors that they make. And so they, they, they maybe are less willing to engage, less willing to allow um, access from external um, kind of projects. So in, in, in a lot of ways, I think what happened here that was so unique is that um, we were, I, I, would, I wouldn't say welcome with open arms, but we were welcomed. We, we, uh, we were invited in. Um, and of course, there are always, you know, concerns about so how will, how will the, the information that comes out of this project be used and so forth. But, but I think, um, I think, I think access to Department of Corrections can be quite quite challenging. And then there, there are just bigger questions about, so then what do you do? You know, once you have knowledge, what do you do? What are, where are the resources available to drive change? And, and what is the kind of political will to drive change um, in this population? Mm -hmm. So, I don't know, Risa, what do you think? Is there? I, I think it, what you said is exactly correct. And what I would add is that um, most Department of Corrections agencies are um, the second biggest or possibly the biggest agency within a state. Um, so what you're looking at is a very large ship that sometimes is very difficult to turn and very difficult to um, have a change in thinking and how you might approach something. 
such as traumatic brain injury. And um, there is resistance sometimes to this, not because people don't agree that there's um, TBIs among not only our staff, which we know, but also among the incarcerated uh, individuals. But as Mark said, then what do you do once you have that knowledge? And a lot of the same symptomology for TBI um, is the same symptomology for people with um, mental health issues. Mm-hmm. Um, some co-occurring, a lot of them have co-occurring um, substance abuse disorder issues. Um, a lot of them um, present with uh, criminal logic thinking or what they used to call antisocial behaviors. And some mm-hmm. of those also mimic some of the things that happen with, with the TBI. So um, when you put all that together, it does become a little bit difficult to tease out what's a TBI but, or what's related to a, a different discipline or you know, something else like mm-hmm. mental health or or, or are they just behaving badly, you know? Um, and, and no matter what the answer is, in, correct, in the correctional setting, we still have to deal with behavior and address behavior, and we still have a duty to keep our staff safe, um, other individuals that are incarcerated safe, and the individual themselves safe, as well as our community, because at the end of the day, that's usually our, we're mission-oriented, and our mission is to protect the community. But our goal in this has always been, well, what can we do that would um, mean that we could help meet our correctional goal of um, safe communities by ensuring that we provide some services to people that will um, assist them to better understand their traumatic brain injury um, and how to accommodate for that, self-accommodate for that and to have linkages to program services and activities while incarcerated. And if we can affect their behavior and how they manage that and how their family would react to that, then ultimately when they leave um, incarceration, they will behave better and not come back. And that's our ultimate goal is we don't want people reincarcerated. And untreated TBIs um, may uh, play a part in recidivism. Okay, so with that, tell us about what you know regarding the statistics of brain injury within the incarcerated population. Well, I, I would say that we um, we don't have great data. This isn't a space where there's been a lot of systematic work that has been conducted. A lot of the, the statistics that we have are... Um, you know, not uh, we're collected in, in ways that we're not representative um, and maybe not always with sort of the strongest uh, kind of psychometric um, approaches. But having said that, I, I think what we know is that people with TBI are incarcerated at high fire, far, <laughs> at, at higher rates, excuse me, than those without. Um, and the question is, you know, how much higher? Um, there are some meta-analyses that suggests that um, 51 to 60% of um, the incarcerated population has experienced a TBI. And you compare that with, you know, even, even, even the sort of the looking at, at the general population, we don't have great data, but I think mm-hmm. uh, uh, we often say that about 8% of the general population have experienced TBI. 
So we see we we see um, a fairly significant difference. You know, um, the Washington State Department of Corrections did do some research. It's now been almost uh, ten years ago. Uh, they did a, a random sample of, of their population and um, collected data. They found that about 35.6% of uh, incarcerated individuals in Washington state had a history of TBI, still quite a bit bigger than the general population. And then in the work we're doing now, we're doing just a, a pilot study. It's not representative at all. And in fact, probably skewed a little bit to people who are having more cognitive disability. But in our pilot sample, 72% are reporting a history of traumatic brain injury. So I think that the key takeaway is that this is a group of people who have experienced a lot of trauma, um, some of which resulted in TBI. Um, they're, I like to say they're a neurologically diverse group of people. Um, and Risa touched on a lot of this, um, lots, of, lots of connections to mental health, to drug and alcohol abuse, um, and to trauma, a lot of trauma in a lot of different ways. And so, um, I think that's the key takeaway. The, the other interesting thing I would just point out, and this is not um, the kind of data you can take home to the bank, but it seems to be um, kind of indicating something. And that is that in our pilot and in some other studies, um, there, there seems to be some evidence that um, people who are incarcerated have a, an early TBI. So a TBI before they're 15 or before they're 20, so potentially impacting developmental developmental trajectories for them, um, and resulting in behaviors that have connected them to criminal justice um, over time. Um, Risa, do you want to add anything to that? Um, only that I would that I would say, um, a lot of times with folks that are incarcerated and this is particularly true of women, um, a lot of the TBIs that they, that they have, have re received, and especially when you talk about those um, smaller TBIs, if you will, um, where they didn't lose consciousness necessarily, but they had a blow to the head. Um, unfortunately, um, for our population, a lot of them are uh, a result of intimate partner violence or family violence. And so if you're a kid that was beat up at home, um, you didn't go to the hospital because you got hit on the head, right? Even if you lost consciousness. Um, and we have had, you know, people that have lost consciousness um, from child abuse. Um, so, uh, and, and then for women, particularly if, if they had problems at home and then they got with a partner that, um, wasn't very nice and, and, and beat them up. Um, a lot of times um, men particularly will blow to the head. That's a, a, a place that they just naturally attack. Um, so they have these multiple small TBIs that, that um, maybe one would be sustainable, but if you have multiple over time and especially within a short period of time, uh, we know that that can have some very bad effects. So. Uh, we, we have a situation where we're not only dealing with the fact that they had TBIs and sometimes didn't even really acknowledge it or know that it was a TBI because they didn't really equate um, being abused with, with, with the resulting TBI. But we also have the, the after effects and the trauma issues of, oh, this is what happened to me and memories and PTSD that that 
evokes. So we have kind of a double dual, if you will, um, hit uh, to the person because they're having to deal with um, the TBI and then they're also having to deal with the trauma of how they got it. You know, some of the things that um, affect people with TBI and corrections, and, and, it, and it is important to, to distinguish that um, in, in the world that's not incarcerated, a lot of these things um, can be eas more easily mitigated or accommodated um, or not even occur because uh, it, they don't have that situation in prison because they're not incarcerated. And some of the things that uh, are very difficult for people um, with traumatic brain injury, for example, are sensory issues and um, uh, loud noises, lights, uh, certain sounds. In prison, we can't turn off the lights and we can't stop the loud noise. There's a lot of people, there's a lot of big doors that clang open and shut. Um, and so there's set and it's sudden you don't, you know, you don't know when to anticipate that. Um, there's alarms, there's, there's just a lot of stuff and a lot of lights and sounds that go on in prison that um, if you were at home, you wouldn't have those same things. Um, we, so, so already um, people are kind of have some, some issues adjusting to prison normally, but if you could imagine if you had a TBI and you had sensitivities or you didn't even know you had a TBI, but you were just in prison struggling, it would be difficult. Um, another thing that uh, people struggle with with TBIs we know is uh, oftentimes emotional deregulation. So they um, are easily aroused, um, they get angry. Sometimes they have kind of firecracker tempers um, um, and they um, uh, may be combative, especially if they feel like their space is invaded um, or if they feel like um, uh, that they don't understand something. And uh, as a defense, you know, um, and, and in prison, uh, that's dangerous for people because if they get angry, they could end up in a fight with another um, inmate and, and now they're in trouble. Um, or they could uh, be combative with staff, of course, and now they're in big trouble, you know, they're in trouble. Um, or they're just, they just get upset and have, um, uh, and, and, and either get very emotional, distraught, or, um, uh, or angry, and, and that can cause them problems. And it can also cause them problems when they're trying to work or go to school. And again, in, in a um, non non-prison environment, a lot of these things are more easily accommodated. In a prison environment, there's less, um, just because it, it, it's a social, or it's, it, it, it's a justice environment, um, there's less uh, grace for people who act out and are, get angry and upset. Um, the assumption is always, well, they're just being, quote, an inmate, or they're just acting out. And there's not that um, knowledge that, hey, maybe uh, we as staff need to take a pause and and see what we can do to mitigate things before we jump into action. And sometimes we can't. I mean, sometimes they've crossed the line, and we have to we have to deal with that. Um, and when we talk about our training, that's one of the things that we tried to kind of emphasize was um, taking a pause, taking a breath. 
using a universal precaution to assume that maybe anybody you deal with has a TBI and so um, deal with that accordingly. But those, those are some of the issues and Mark can weigh in on some of the others where, uh, but these are the two that I particularly uh, notice as, as barriers for people with TBI, um, the sensory issues and also the emotional uh, dysregulation where they get, them, they get into trouble um, um, because they're, they, they're not, they don't really know how to manage um, their stuff. But they also, also do have issues with depression, anxiety. Uh, so maybe they stay in their cell too much, they're depressed, they need access to mental health, um, fatigue. Um, those are all things that people deal with. And again, easier to deal with on the outside, not always so easy to deal with on the inside. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's, that's really good. I, I mean, I think Risa touches on the things that in particular can get folks um, or incarcerated people connected to um, some kind of uh, consequence. Um, I think there are there are other things that are can be problematic for folks who are incarcerated, and you know, obviously there are cognitive challenge that challenges that can accompany traumatic brain injury as well. So difficulties in kind of the executive functions, right? Planning, organization, etc. Um, difficulty with memory. Um, and as Risa notes, that there are things that what might be sort of recommended or prescribed from an OT perspective. This is could be interesting. I think you know things in the community that you might suggest. You know, you should buy a planner. You should use your iPhone, and we'll set up uh, Google reminders. You know, there are all these things that are not really feasible inside of a prison. And so it doesn't mean that there aren't possibilities. Um, it doesn't mean that somebody can't carry a paper planner, for example, um, if they're in the right security setting. Um, and so there are ways, um, and Reese has worked uh, really hard to figure out kind of what are allowable accommodations within the security infrastructure of prison. Um, but those are other things that, get, that, that can get, I wouldn't want to say get people in trouble, but they can be problematic. You know, if you, um, if you, uh, know that you're supposed to go to the dentist um, and you, it's your responsibility to show up um, at the right place at the right time and you forget, you can get in trouble for not doing that. Um, you can even potentially, it's not, not as likely now, but you could have been infracted for failure to show up. And so I think um, those are those are other examples. Um, the last thing I would say is that, you know, sometimes TBI affects um, social cognition, social functioning, ability to kind of understand the social milieu to you know make friends and to um and to to work um within social contexts and understand those social contexts appropriately and so we think that sometimes people who are experiencing effects of tbi might be a little bit more vulnerable in prison settings where they might be manipulated um, and taken advantage of in different ways yeah This podcast episode is supported by the Therapy Insights Access Pass. Get instant access to over a 1,000 digital downloads, including patient education handouts, clinical tools, and therapy materials. Get on-demand access to courses from a range of clinical experts designed to advance your therapy practice. Stay up to date with the latest research with summaries of recently published research in the library of article snapshots. 
Spend less time reinventing the wheel and more time connecting with your patients. Elevate your clinical practice with a suite of functional, evidence-based, person-centered therapy resources on demand at your fingertips. Simply click, download, print, and go. Created by and built for speech, occupational, and physical therapists with new content added monthly. Sign up for the Access Pass today at therapyinsights.com. So, um, we proposed a project that had two broad tracks. One of them was really um, education, um, because we felt that we had to um, communicate the challenges to people, help them understand, um, even though we don't have great data, understand what we do know um, and, and what we think is happening within correctional settings. And then the second phase was to um, develop a plan to implement a pilot study to try to implement some kind of services or um, trainings or things that would um, begin to move the dial on uh, on how um, staff within a correctional setting think about uh, traumatic brain injury in the in, uh, population of people who are incarcerated. So we, um, we were pretty successful, I think, in our first phase. We were able to get in um, connected to the training and development unit of the Department of Corrections, which is actually a really pretty sizable training unit because they're a pretty large organization. Um, and we worked with them to develop an online uh, intro to TBI training course um, that they allowed to be part of their in-service training. And so what that meant was that all of the staff of the Department of Corrections were required to take this uh, 30, 45 minute training um, and it covered, um, you know, what is TBI, um, how does it affect people, and how can you think about responding um, when, when you um, imagine, the, the problem here is you don't know whether you're working with someone with TBI, but as Risa noted, if you sort of um, are trying to use more universal approaches, um, assuming that there is a, uh, there's a lot of folks who have experienced TBI, what are the ways that you can kind of approach that? And so we had about um, 7,600 staff members take that training um, in the Department of Corrections. Um, and then out of that, we moved on and did trainings um, with more targeted focused um, focus groups. So we worked with um, the ADA coordinators. Every facility has an ADA coordinator um, and uh, Risa leads that um, group. So we trained those folks. We provided, um, I don't know if we call them trainings, uh, but we connected with executive leadership um, and we also connected to facility level leadership um, to provide trainings. Uh, and then we, um, we also provided a training to the psychologist fours. Those are the doctoral level, psycholo doctoral level psychologists in the Department of Corrections. So um, that was kind of the training thread and then I should let Risa talk about this because it was really her um, her idea, um, but we created a, a TBI task force, um, which is um, a group of individuals from a, a, across all job classifications, or at least almost all job classifications in the Department of Corrections. Risa can tell you more about it, but that was the planning group that then created the plan for a pilot project. And the pilot project was implemented in a in a facility um, called Stafford Creek Correctional Center. 
and it's um, been implemented over the last year or so slightly or well more than slightly affected by COVID um, but uh, it involved um, really three components developing an approach to screening for TBI um, within the Department of Corrections um, developing a cognitive skills training uh, curriculum uh, that's been implemented I think we're now in our fourth or fifth uh, offering of that class and developing a peer mentoring system. And so those were the aspects of the, the pilot project. And so Risa, why don't you talk a little bit about the TBI task force? Because what, what I would say happened for us is that as people external to DOC and also university people, so kind of ivory tower people, um, we don't have a lot of credibility within the Department of Corrections. Or let me reframe that. We have a certain kind of credibility, but there's a, you know, we, we're, people think that we know things, but they don't think we understand how the world works in the Department of Corrections. And they're right, we don't, absolutely. And so working with Risa, Risa was on the ground. She has, you know, decades of experience. And so she brought a kind of credibility, but she also understood how the system worked and how you know, what, what the correct pathways were so that we wouldn't get into trouble doing things that we hadn't received approval for or hadn't worked through, through the appropriate channels. And the development of the TBI task force was a big part of that. So you wanna talk about that? Sure. Well, I think one of the things we did that was, that was smart is we didn't just limit it to DOC and the University of Washington. We also had um, a representative from the, the Veterans Administration um, we had a representative from um, uh, the Department of Social and Health Services um, Traumatic Brain Injury Council, the person who, who led that effort for the state of Washington. Um, we had a representative from Disability Rights Washington, who is the protective advocate and um, is often our kind of our adversary in some ways um, to the department because they, they, they advocate for individuals and I and I don't say that in a negative way I'm just saying you yeah. know that's the goal um, yeah. but we wanted them as a, as a teammate because they, they have they do have a lot of expertise and a lot to offer um, we also included um, uh, a community advocate who was a, a TBI survivor um, and and this person in particular um, had a TBI while he was um, an employee for a uh, Department of Corrections um, uh, at another state um, and uh, suffered a TBI that, that, that caused his retire early retirement. Um, and so um, he was also had a lot to offer because he, he knew the correction side of things, but he also understood the TBI side of things. Um, so with having this diverse, and then on the DOC side, um, we included mental health, health services, classification, custody, administration, and one uh, in ADA, of course. Uh, and one of the things that was very critical to our whole operation was getting the buy-in from the executive leadership. And one of the reasons I wanted to do a task force was um, DOC, because we're very regulated and we're kind of a formal <laughs> agency, um, we have a formalized process for forming a task force and ensuring that there is a sponsor and and roles uh, within the task force. And by doing that, what we did was is we were able to garner the support 
for the sponsors to be the assistant secretary for prisons, which would be the custody side of the house, and the assistant secretary for health services, which would be where, uh, which is my side of the house. I work for health services. Um, and that would also be the placement for which the pilot would happen. So um, by doing that, we, we were able to for, kind of force, if you will, um, executive leadership to um, buy into it because they had approved the task force, they approved a charter, they did all these things that said we, we, we are in agreement. And, and so by doing that, what that allowed us to do was have the freedom to work within the task force where, where ultimately was, was where we um, decided what we wanted our pilot to be. But the other thing that it did is it gave us a segue into our policy world and um, as an old policy coordinator for the department, um, I, I knew that once we could get TBI into our policies and protocols and procedures, that, that then, it, then what that does is that becomes a way of operating because it's in policy. It's not, it's not just something that's over here and we can just, when the grant's done, we can stop because I knew all along that if our, when our grant goes away, I wanted it to still uh, happen because ethically, if you're if you're saying you're you're you care about people with TBI, you have to find a way for it to keep going. So that was my kind of one of the things that I wanted to be sure happened was that we got TBI embedded into our policies and our protocols so that the 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 program's sustainable once the grant goes away. Amazing. Wow, that's incredible. Like the group that you pulled together and then the way that you did it is amazing because yeah, I don't, I think um, when people have good intentions but it's not sustainable, then you're actually doing more damage than good, so. Exactly, yes, that was my, that was actually my big fear, Megan, is that, you know, the, the grant goes away and everybody goes, well, that's the end of that and the treatment goes away and then the, the, the patients um, that were receiving care, now they're in this vacuum. And that's all, almost worse than doing nothing. So exactly. I felt very, very strongly that we had to find a way to keep it going. And with a little bit of serendipity <laughs> or luck or whatever you want to call it, um, uh, getting some uh, uh, a benefactor uh, that uh, gave us a few hundred thousand dollars uh, to sustain us after the grant while we worked to go to the legislature. We've been very, very fortunate. But um, again, going back to our, our benefactor happens to be the um, Department of Social and Health Services, the, the TBI Council. Well, the TBI Council was on our task force and they were able to see the work that we were doing and the investment that we were making in lives and um, came to us and, 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 and had a conversation about our commitment to the program after the post-grant. Um, and we were able to convince them that we, we were extremely interested in, in keeping this going. And so ultimately they gave us some money to, to expand the program, not just from our pilot, but to all of our DOC facilities to have a TBI uh, program within each facility. So um, the sustainability is finally in play and that was supported. I mean, the contract was signed, was supported by uh, executive management and 
uh, healthcare and mental health, and um, which is a huge win um, because to, um, uh, mental health was always concerned about um, sustainability because of resources and um, you know how do we manage um, th these many patients with TBI with the resources that we have? Well, this grant. The grant and and then this other money gave us the ability to expand our resources a little bit. Wow, I mean, I I do think there's this movement and this shift happening in the United States where people really want more integration and more collaboration and more interdisciplinary care, like exactly what you're doing. And it it takes so much time and so much effort and so much commitment. So I just commend you both for doing what you're doing. I think it's incredible. Well, we couldn't have done it without the university and they, they continue to find help, you know, find us grants and, and Mark might want to talk about a grant that we have in the works, but um, you know, we're, we're continuing to um, work with them to um, accrue other grants to do even more um, with, with what we're doing. So, and to make sure that it's sustainable into the future. So. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I would just, I mean, I, it's maybe already been said, but I would just add to what you both have said, and that is that the w one of the key um, takeaways is that it's not just about the money. It's not just about having high quality evidence. Uh, and it's not just about sort of organizational structure and having everybody at the table, but that really, this is a, this is an organizational change project that is long term and requires um, a lot of ongoing commitment to make it happen. You know, I think a huge part of the success was the work that Risa did to, to help um, get the right people at the table and then to have the kind of meetings that they thought were valuable enough to come back to. And mm -hmm. then to see that their you know, re resources were important, the grant itself and the money itself was a piece that convinced people, okay, let's give this a try. Um, and then it's all moving towards a long, longer term set of goals. And, and one of those is about resources. So there's a goal to go to the Washington State Legislature and say, look, we've done this work. We see this problem that needs to be solved. Um, we hope to at some point look at an economic analysis. What would it, what would it mean if we actually could um, support incarcerated people to be more successful both in prison and when they return to community. Mm -hmm. um, but then also, I think a huge piece that we're, we're continuing to explore is just the broader interagency um, set of relationships in a state government, you know, because DOC can't do it all. Um, and when people release, they need to release to services that they're eligible for. That doesn't always happen right now. So um, it is just this very complex um, change process. And I think mm -hmm. anybody who wants to explore and kind of get into the space has to be willing to um, kind of think at that grand scale um, and then kind of work uh, starting from the beginning on the little pieces that have to come together. Yeah. Yeah. So you kind of talked about the response as far as interagency and everybody coming together and seeing the value and investing. Do you want to talk? Um, about any other kind of response that has occurred? Risa, do you want to talk about the response um, maybe within the Department of Corrections to um, the work? 
Well, a couple of things. Um, one is, um, as mentioned before, we have ADA coordinators at each of our um, prison facilities and each of our work releases and then each um, community corrections section. And we have seven sections within DOC. Um, and community corrections, just think of it as probation and parole. That's the common jargon that people would understand. Um, and so by doing training to our ADA coordinators and raising their awareness, um, that has, that we were able to identify some accommodations that would be helpful for people um, uh, with TBIs that needed an accommodation to do certain things. But we couldn't do that on our own because of security. So we worked with, we, ha we have, DOC has a security advisory committee. That's a statewide committee. It's composed of the, the captains uh, from each facility and <clears throat> various security personnel at headquarters. And what we did is we went and we did some, uh, not really a training, but uh, a, a discussion about TBI and let them know what our project was and uh, uh, listed for them, shared with them, showed them some of the um, accommodations that we would be considering providing to get their support. Um, and that was really important because our accommodation process um, requires a signature of, uh, on the form for an accommodation by the captain or senior custody person at a facility. So um, what we tried to do was um, rather than just be putting things in front of them to say, hey, please approve this, and they don't know why or, or, or what the reason is or what the benefit is to, um, for security, we were able to um, explain to them why this will be beneficial to the security of the institution, um, why this will um, be helpful, um, cause less frustration for their staff, um, cause less frustration for the individual receiving the accommodation. Um, and, and so it's kind of a win-win, right? So um, we were able to um, get some accommodations. So what that did was, in essence, is, is that it gave the captains ease to approve them because they knew, oh, this is a program that's vetted. Uh, everybody understands it or, you know, they, they know something about it. And it's not new peanuts when we come and ask them. Um, the other group that we have worked with really closely is the mental health folks. And as I mentioned before, there was some resistance with um, TBI, not that they don't want to do stuff for TBI. They were just very concerned about how, how, how um, the resources were so stretched just because they have policies that require them to see uh, patients who are on uh, psych meds so often during the year and if they have this problem so often. So they have they have pretty strict guidelines about how often they see patients. And then if you throw another whole diagnostic group of people to see, then it's like, well, how do I how do I manage that? And and even if I'm seeing somebody for a co-occurring uh, issue. How do I how do I manage that with the time that I'm allowed to see patients? So, um, so there is um, uh, concerns, legitimate concerns about resourcing, and um, thankfully, uh, because of our, our 
how we were able to get some money to cover some of that, now there's a lot more support. Now there's um, a more gung-ho attitude about uh, wanting to treat uh, folks with TBI. But again, it goes back to um, having to have those delicate conversations, doing the training for the psychologist fours, who are the supervisors, working with the director of mental health and others who um, went from being uh, concerned and a little bit uh, reticent about uh, uh, moving ahead to being to being an advocate for us. So um, when you talk about change in an organization, those were certainly changes that we were able to affect. Risa, um, can you talk a little bit about uh, an area where I think we've had less success and I think that's in the correctional officer space and, um, and just sort of changing minds or really connecting on the ground with officers who are day-to-day working in the facilities? You know, it, it, um, I think it's a mixed bag. Yeah. Um, when, we, when we did the initial training, um, the, uh, some of the feedback was, and even from our ADA coordinators initially, was, oh my gosh, how am I going to know if somebody has a TBI? I don't know, and, which is why we kind of pushed the idea of universal precautions. Um, just like we use universal precautions for PPEs uh, because we don't know who ha- might have an infectious disease. We um, thought using universal precautions to say we don't know who has a TBI because it's 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 not tattooed on their their forehead, right? Um, and, and it's health information, so we're not necessarily sharing we're not sharing that with staff. Um, just but but there's some things that you can do as a universal precaution um, when you interact with somebody that's agitated or upset uh, to give some space, let them breathe a little bit if they need a timeout, you know, accommodate if you can, some of those things. Um, but correctional officers are still correctional officers and they still are paid to address offender behavior and to maintain safety and security. So there's always a little bit of tension between um, even sometimes their desire to uh, permit more space or versus I have to, there's a rule here I have to enforce and I have to enforce it because it's pretty important for security. You know, I can't let him, I can't let him walk out the door. Um, he, I can't let him leave the building. I, I, I can't let him do certain things or her certain things. So, so there, there is always going, and I think that's going to be endemic. There's always going to be a little bit of tension because there's there's the rules, many of which are legitimate and to protect people, um, versus the um, I, I want to de how how we de deescalate people. In Washington, we are very fortunate that we utilize a a supervision model where we do interact with our um, incarcerated individuals. Um, many states just kind of lock them up in their cells still and don't interact, but we use direct, a direct supervision model where we actually talk to people, interact with people, and learn their baseline and learn how they are so that if something is wrong, we know how to go in and to intervene. And so um, giving staff information about TBIs is just one more um, piece of information that line staff can have to step back and think, you know what, 
this this person is is being difficult and maybe it's because of a TBI and maybe if I just step back and give some space or let them go sell in for a minute and calm down before I re-engage that will be more helpful so it's mm -hmm. it it's it's doing that and one of the things I'm working on right now is to try to um, redo our um, training that we provided because it's been a couple of years now and you know you get training and what do you do first year you're right on it and then it kind of drops off or, or you get new staff and so mm -hmm. um, and we have also embedded into our, our new um, our correctional academy uh, a segment on TBI which we did not have before so we, we've added a, a piece in our correctional officer academy so we're, we're getting there but it, it's it, it's not going to be overnight Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And Risa just mentioned something that, that maybe we should have talked about before, and that is staff transition uh, as a challenge for sustainability. DOC has a, a really high transition rate, I think. I think we're on our third secretary, right? Um, so the top leadership has transitioned in just the last six years multiple times. Um, there's a fair bit of movement in the executive leadership. And then a lot of maybe not leaving DOC, but moving facility to facility. So you're, um, you're kind of building capacity. It can really change when people mm -hmm. leave, right? Um, so I keep telling Risa she's not allowed to retire. Um, <laughs> yeah. um, what does the screening process look like? So it was interesting that you said, I didn't really think about how it is health information and you can't necessarily share that. So that's interesting about the universal precautions. Um, but yeah, what does the screening process look like? Because I think that's challenging for anybody to try to figure out any kind of brain injury from the past um, or even the recent past. Um, we just don't have great diagnostic tools for that yet. So I'm curious what the screening process looks for you guys. Yeah. No, you're right on. It's, it is a really challenging task. And I would say that what we've developed is a very much an administrative screening task. It's an attempt to figure out who um, needs and can benefit the most from uh, resources that are available to, for, for them. And in, in our case, that tends to be um, the cognitive skills training, the peer mentoring, you know, maybe uh, connections to mental health, perhaps. And so we're not doing a, you know, a clinical diagnosis. Um, we're not doing differential diagnosis. I think it's, you know, it's really, really challenging in this population for whom um, we're really addressing the, the chronic effects of TBI. We're not dealing generally with acute TBI. There are times when people acquire their TBI while they're incarcerated, but a lot of the emphasis is on on people who have a, a life history of traumatic brain injury, and often multiple. Um, we're seeing people um, in our current screening process report, reporting, often reporting more than one TBI in their lifetime. And so, um, what we've done is develop a, a three-tiered system. Um, the, the first tier is uh, just a very uh, short. In fact, it, it became shorter and shorter over the course of um, deciding what to do. Uh, but a very short uh, screener that asks about um, whether or not they've had a TBI, 
uh, with loss of consciousness and how old they were when it happened. We actually tried to start with something like the OSU TBI ID, but the problem is that this initial screener, we wanted it to happen um, on entry to the Department of Corrections. And so when people, um, men and women come to the intake facilities, they are screened for a whole bunch of different things. It can take quite a bit of time just to implement that. And so um, we were told one or two questions is the max that we'll allow to be added to that screening process. Mm -hmm. And so, um, so that's what we have. Um, but we do have one very important thing, which I think is, is super powerful, and that's a checkbox. And the checkbox is this person should be followed up for symptom screening. And so um, the second screener is a symptom screener. We, uh, it, is, it is what's called a, a, a patient report outcome measure, PRO. Um, so it is, it is self-report. Mm -hmm. uh, and we took items, some people may be familiar with these, um, these measurement systems. We took items from Promise, from NeuroQual, um, and from TBI Qual. So NeuroQual is a, a measurement system, neurological quality of life, TBI Qual is TBI quality of life, and Promise is patient reported outcome measurement information system. Uh, Promise and NeuroQual were developed uh, out of NIH funding, National Institute of Health funding, and the goal was to develop PRO measures that could be um, used across research studies so that there were consistent um, uh, consistent measures that were in use and then would allow for comparability later. And so um, these, these um, items were developed using the item response theory, and so they're they're all normed to general census population. Um, because you have item level uh, statistics, you can pull them out and create short forms. And so we created a short form that has um, a lot of different domains on it, um, uh, four items per domain. Uh, I won't remember them all, but there's applied cognition, there's uh, communication and comprehension, there's headache, there's uh, fatigue, there's depression, um, there's behavioral dysregulation um, and, and a few others. And then we, we created our own short measures of sensory sensitivity and dizziness and balance because those were not something that came out of promise. So those don't have norms, but um, we decided to include them anyway. And so uh, this, is a, this is two pages, uh, I think where there were like 24 questions. Um, and uh, they just walk through and ask those questions to individuals. And then we look at them. The, the beauty of, of using the promise and the NeuroQual items is that they um, can be scored um, and using T-scores. And so we know um, T-scores are a standard score where uh, 10 is one standard deviation, five is a half standard deviation. So you can easily just look at the score and see where that person falls in relation to a general census population. Now, I think, I think it's pretty clear that this population is very different from a general census population, but it begins to give you a sense for, um, at least in comparison to, the, to, to everyone else, kind of where they're falling. And so the challenge now <laughs> is that DOC would like a decision rule, a very clear, concise decision rule that they can apply consistently um, across the, the board to help them decide who should receive 
cognitive skills training um, primarily, um, and then it's kind of secondarily who should be in the peer mentoring programs. And the problem with that is that we're finding is it's just not, um, you know, it, we, we thought, well, could we like pick four or five of those domains um, that we think are most important? Would that, would that help us figure out who should be in? Or, um, you know, can we, can we think about profiles of people that we might develop? And, and I think the reality is that it's going to always require some professional judgment. And so, you know, you can look at the symptom screener. It helps you understand whether uh, somebody is expressing that, that they have a lot of that domain, like a lot of problems in applied cognition, a lot of depression, um, a lot of fatigue uh, or headache. And out of that, it does still take some professional judgment to say, um, uh, this person is having headache um, and a lot of fatigue. And so maybe, maybe this is more health services uh, kind of referral. This person's having a lot of depression and anxiety, but they're not reporting a lot of cognitive challenges. Maybe this is more of a, let's check and see, is this person connected to mental health already? What's going on there? Um, but, you know, if somebody's saying they're having difficulty in thinking and communicating um, and maybe uh, uh, challenges in other areas, we're seeing a lot of people reporting sleep difficulty, um, difficulty with sleep, which may, may just be because they're in prison and it's noisy and they don't have a lot of control over that. Um, or it could be related to um, potentially connected to TBI. It's hard to say. But then out of that has to come a decision about whether this person should uh, receive skill-based training, um, whether they should be referred to health services or mental health services, or whether they should be referred to um, Risa, who runs ADA accommodations, and that there are accommodations that should be put in place. And so that's the third tier. The third tier is um, kind of you know, I guess there are four parts, do nothing or refer to one of these three places. And so um, I think at a minimum, it's starting a conversation. And so we're working with um, a, a psych associate who's running our pilot project. And she's trying to kind of document her decision making about when she thinks somebody will benefit. Um, and, and she, you know, it, it's a little bit data a little bit professional judgment to figure out those next steps um risa do you want to add anything to that um well one thing i would say is is that we work closely with um our psych associate and mental health and health services uh, around accommodations um, and have given accommodations to several of the people that have gone um, that have been enrolled in um, the psychoeducation groups um, that are being done, um, or uh, other uh, staff who have referred for TBI, like health service provider or something. So um, that's kind of their pathway to get an accommodation. Is usually we hear about it from um, one of those groups reaching out to us. Um, yeah, yeah, and and you have given accommodations for folks with TBI, which is. The first time, right? I mean, in the last couple of years, that's the first time that's happened. Yes, and, and again, because we've gotten some support, we've gotten support from um, the security advisory uh, group. Um, we've 
I've been able to get like noise canceling headphones uh, for people who are really sensitive to the noise in the day rooms where it's really noisy mm -hmm. and they'd like to be able to go out there and play board games, but the noise just is too distracting for them and they can't tolerate it. Um, and and no, normally it sounds silly, but normally in prison, you can't carry anything around with you as you go from one part of the prison to another. Um, so we've been able to um, get allowances for people to carry a, a pad and paper with them uh, so that they can make notes and write things down. Um, we also have a program uh, called Access Assistance, which is basically uh, what some might think of as a help aid or a helper um, that um, are trained um, and assigned by staff that would um, maybe give reminders to a person, hey, you have a call out, don't forget your call out, or even walk with them over if they, they get disoriented and they forget where to go. Um, walk them over to their healthcare appointment and just wait for them in the lobby, in the, in the waiting room, um, or um, walk with them to um, some area of the facility. Maybe they, um, they're they anxious, and so that's a way to kind of decrease anxiety is to have a, a buddy, if you will, um, walk with them to, to the uh, dinner or to the uh, library or other places. So there's, there's some things that we can do um, to kind of mitigate um, um, the effects of a TBI within the prison setting that we have to be a little bit creative because we can't give them iPads and tell them, oh, do something with your, you know, color code your keys. I can't do that. So, um, yeah, you're, you know, all the traditional things that a, gr a great OT would think of um, are some things we can't do. But so we've had to be a little bit creative. But where we can be creative, we, we want to be. Because um, uh, yeah. we, we do want to accommodate where we can. So, can you talk about like, so there's this screening process in place, and then is there a moment where the person themselves is informed that they, like, do you have a conversation about any kind of label of TBI or brain injury survivor, mm -hmm. or like, what does the conversation with that person look like? I, I can speak to that a little just because I've talked with uh, our psych associate quite a bit about this. Um, and, and it is kind of a tricky issue, right? Because it could be that the challenges this person's having is because of TBI or TBIs they've experienced. It could be a lot of things. Differential diagnosis, like we've talked about, is just a really perhaps impossible um, in this population. And so um, you don't you obviously don't want to say you have a TBI, it's causing you these problems. Now you can create identity around the fact that you have a TBI, right. you know, and I know there's a lot of discussion in the community about not trying to, especially for mild TBI, not trying to get people too connected to that label uh, or have that label kind of be the way thing that explains the challenges they have in their life or make them feel like they can't change things. So mm -hmm. that balance. Um, the flip side is that a lot of the people that, we're seeing are people who have had who have a pretty significant history of a brain injury, um, who may have had multiple brain injuries, who may have had loss of conscious consciousness multiple times, um, and uh, and so is that the only cause? Maybe maybe it's not the only cause, but it 
for for folks, especially who have gone on to the skills-based training, they've just really appreciated having um, somebody understand that what they're experiencing is real, that it could be related to something that actually happened to them in their lives. That's not all been about just decisions they've made, that they made all these bad decisions and they're bad people and that's why they're in prison. Um, but that they um, that they that there are things that they can um, try to understand about themselves. That there are potentially new skills that they can develop. That it doesn't feel, I think, so hopeless. And there's also a sense of um, yeah, I think a real appreciation that somebody recognizes that this happened to them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm I'm hearing I heard that today when I talked to the this subject matter expert in the women's facility as well that um, they have a couple of women who started their peer mentoring group who feel the same way so so I think that that's uh, that's a little bit tricky um, kind of space to work in and what I hear our psych associate saying is that that she's not you know she, in fact she can't say your TBI is what's causing these problems but she can go through the symptom screener and say wow it seems like you're you're feeling like you're having a lot of trouble uh, with thinking you're not thinking very clearly you're not remembering very well. Um, and you're also telling me that you get angry really quickly and you're having other kinds of issues here with emotions. And, and so she, she focuses more on the symptoms. Um, she acknowledges the, the connection to TBI, but I don't think she's framing it as, um, so much a TBI identity as, um, you know, uh, as an explanatory factor, but as something that they have reported and could be related to the problems that they're experiencing mm-hmm. now. And then in the in the skills-based training, a lot of what's happening there would be useful for people, whether they have TBI or some sure. other um, cognitive or neurological um, disability. And so I think that's the way she's framing it. Um, and sometimes she, she, she frames it the opposite way because she says, you know, I, I can see that you're having a lot of fatigue, but it looks like you're doing great across these other areas. So look how resilient you are. Um, you don't need the skills training. You know, you might need a little help on something else. But and so I think focusing on symptoms has been a part of mm-hmm. what she's and on diagnosis. And what do the, the peer support groups look like? Well, <laughs> very different now than they would have a couple of years oh, ago. Sure. Um, but actually in some ways better um, because we had planned to bring um, community peer mentors in to physically into the prisons um, to run uh, groups. And and it would have would have been and may still be a cool thing to do. Um, one of the things Risa has brought up several times is just how nice it would be for people to, when, pe- when people are incarcerated release, to release to peer mentoring, peer mentoring systems that are already in place in the community. But because of COVID, we couldn't do that. And we were gonna work with peer groups that were set up by the TBI council. And the TBI council had to, council had to move everything to an online system. So they now use a system called Hey Peers. And um, they have created a DOC version of peer mentoring. So out in the community, you just log in, you can come to any peer support group you want to. It's just all open. You don't have to give them your name. You know, there's a lot of confidentiality, but um, they've created a um, 
scheduled peer mentoring group in, in our pilot so that um, the men who are participating, because it's the men's facility now, the men who are participating come to a classroom, they're supervised by correctional staff, they log into the system, and then there are community peer mentors who are actually uh, now trained peer mentors, they kind of do this as a job, uh, who then um, uh, support a curriculum um, that goes through, you know, just discussions about, you know, what do, what, what do people do when they have this kind of problem or what do they do when they have that kind of problem? And so, uh, so it's, a, it's a kind of a controlled um, peer mentoring group, but online. <laughs> Um, okay, so what would you say that you have learned from designing this, creating this, collaborating on this, um, kind of lessons that you might pass on to somebody else that would want to tackle this in another state? Well, I would say one of, one of my big takeaways is don't give up. Um, you know, we had to fight COVID and uh, bureaucracy and uh, grants that we wanted but we didn't get and, and various uh, barriers along the way and um, I would say that um, because we were willing to keep pushing forward and pushing on um, that at the end of the day we, we ended up with a, a, a pretty decent product. Um, I would also stress that I, I've always said relationships are everything. And um, having developed a very solid relationship with uh, administration, uh, with our uh, partners from the University of Washington who have been invaluable, um, not, just with, not just with their expertise in, in TBI, and, and, and Mark is very modest. Um, his team of, of people are extremely... Uh, smart and, and knowledgeable and community experts in TBI and to have the um, luxury of having training by this group was really phenomenal. Um, and, and also our, our other community partners who were able to give us good feedback and, uh, and, and mentor us along as, as we went. Um, I think that, that I can't stress enough that relationships to get a project done is is really um, does does win out the day. Um, uh, I think the other thing that I learned um, that's always surprising is really how resilient people can be. Um, the people that we we've had that have gone through our um, our psychoeducation uh, groups and peer mentoring, um, the feedback that they've given to. Um, our psych associate who's running the pilot um, has been so positive. Um, things like, I, I, I finally, somebody's finally acknowledged, this first time I've been acknowledged to have a TBI, it's the first time it's been so freeing. It's been uh, it's so good to know these things. I've learned so much. So when when we see the, the, the real-time actual feedback from the participants, it, it just, let you know that what we the decisions that we made and the, and the heart that we had for it really um, was the right thing to do. It was it was in the right space. So um, those are that's the things that I've learned. Yeah, I'd agree with those things, um, and I would say you know coming from the community side, I think um, 
there are a couple of things to think about. One is uh, you have to think about how you're how you want to engage with corrections. And you know, there's there's a big movement for abolition. There's a big movement for uh, that's really about um, you know. Uh, closing down corrections, not working with corrections to improve what's happening. And so those are very different approaches. And there are people who've talked to me who said, I would never work in corrections. You're just helping to improve a bad system, basically. And so um, I think that that's one piece you have to, you have to come in, uh, at least, you know, my, my approach is I'm really interested in how do we improve the lives of these individuals who come into contact with criminal justice and corrections. And, you know, there maybe we are in some ways supporting the system, but we're also changing the system. And that that is a, a different kind of interaction. Mm-hmm. And then the other piece of it is that I think you have to work really hard to understand. I mean, most of us have no experience with corrections. We, we don't know what it's like to work in corrections. Um, we don't know that experience of, of um, the individuals who are on the staff side of things. And you really have to spend a lot of time shifting perspective and trying to understand, you know, there's my sort of um, outsider view where I think I know things, but then to really think about what would the experience be like to be a correctional officer in a facility and have to deal with behaviors and in, in spaces that can be, you know, quite literally life-threatening, um, where people have died within the last five years um, uh, as correctional officers. So I think, I think there's, a, there's an empathy there that has to be developed if you want to work in that space um, mm-hmm. in order to be there and be respectful and to really um, hear what people are telling you. Um, let's see, I wrote this question and I don't, if you have an answer, great. If you don't, I totally understand. But my question is, what advice do you have for speech, occupational, and physical therapists working with people who have survived TBIs, who have clear behavioral issues, including reduced insight, increased aggression, reduced inhibition, um, particularly if they're at risk for incarceration after leaving a medical facility? So maybe a therapist is working with this person in acute care or post-acute care um, and they can just see kind of the trajectory of this person could land them into a system of um, going to jail, going to prison, ending up in some kind of system like that. So do you have any advice for therapists working with people who are in that position? I mean, I have a thought about it and I don't know that I have any super clear advice, but I think the first thing is you have to have to really acknowledge and understand that that is a that risk is real. So, you you know, it's really easy to to sort of say, well, that's a little bit out of my hands. That's beyond what my scope. Um, but I think you have to I think I think it'd be it'd be great if therapists can just think about that question. What is the risk of criminal justice involvement for this person when they leave? Um, and if that's a real risk, how do I build that into my treatment plan? Are there any ways where I can uh, sort of reduce the risk for this individual? Because, you know, I think um, at a very high level, you could make the case that people are being institutionalized on the basis of their disability. Um, 
and receiving punishment essentially that is connected it doesn't it doesn't explain away what they did or um you know the the the, the rules that they broke or the the problems they caused but 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 if there's a connection and if there had been potential for treatment you know there's all sorts of discussion about how do we move away from enforcement and move to treatment i mean this is where that's where the rubber hits the road right here and what are the ways in which ot's can be a part of that um I, and like i said i'm not sure i have very specifics for you um but i think i think if you even just begin thinking about it probably smart ot's would be able to figure out a couple strategies or a couple connections that might at least help yeah. Um, I would like to add that um, we we know for just people who are incarcerated in general um, and are released from prison, those that have good connections, healthy connections, healthy with their families are less likely to end up back in prison. So if assuming that somebody has the proper medical <laughs> Uh, forms so that you can share information um, involving if you do involving the family and make them and make helping them to be part of the treatment team and 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 holding that person accountable and supporting that person um, would probably do a lot to help them not to get involved with criminal justice um, because um, we just know statistically that um, people with poor family connections uh, often become involved with the criminal justice system. And if they do, they, they recidivate more likely than people that have a strong family connection. So yeah. um, I think involving the family, and that would include educating the family as to TBIs and, and what that means for that person would be very, very helpful um, because they can then know what to look for and know how to manage things long-term. Yeah, that's such a great point because I do think families tend to um, struggle with understanding particularly the behavioral changes and personality changes. And that also makes me think about like, even if the family isn't right there at the facility or you know somewhere where there's easy access to provide that education, if there's any family connection, making sure to reach out with a phone call or something to have that conversation could be something that's useful. I'll, I'll add one more thing, which is that um, there aren't a lot of OTs working in correctional settings. Yeah, I was going to ask. I know physical therapists do. Do speech or OT? Are they? Um, we usually contract. In, in WADOC, we, we normally contract for PT and OT. Um, we actually want to hire an OT for our um, skill building unit that's been on the DACA, but we've been unable to do so because of pay. Um, and it's also a remote facility. So um, not very many people want to live in that, that area of the state. So it, it, there's challenges. Um, but uh, if anybody would love to live by the ocean, we have <laughs> go, go to uh careers.wa.gov and you, you, you can find a, a, a slot. So, um, but yes, um, yeah, oh, I think OTs are um, a missing link for corrections. Um, we used to have more of them. Um, uh, and I don't know why that kind of went away. And uh, I, I think it's critical because um, 
after all, you, you good people are the ones that, you know, make sure that people can stay employed and uh, manage, manage their lives correctly. So um, I think there's a little bit of that coming back where there's more interest in that now. For a while, that kind of went away, but we're finally gaining some ground there, so. Excellent. All right, is there anything I didn't ask that I should have asked or anything you want to touch on before we stop recording? Just that I think that the future of this project is um, to, to build out for folk with a focus on folks who are currently incarcerated, but then to really think about, and that includes women, but then to really think about uh, community reentry because that's such a critical juncture um, where uh, that handoff potentially to other um, agencies, uh, other supports and community services um, is so critical. So I think that, you know, this is a great start um, and it's wonderful to have this second sort of round of resources that are infusing to allow it to continue for a couple of years with a focus on currently incarcerated individuals. But I do think that community reentry piece is absolutely critical. Yeah, for sure. And the piece, you know, phase three might be the piece before that, you know, like how to how to properly screen for these TBIs and younger populations so that they yeah. actually know what's happening to them sooner. Absolutely. And there is, there is work. I think that's going to even, that, I've heard rumor, murmurings that um, juvenile justice is already beginning in Washington, at least, to ask about what's happening at the adult, because because there are enough, enough juveniles who transition to adult prison um, that that's a, another kind of transition um, point that isn't being well thought out. Yeah. So the work won't end and Risa can never retire. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for having us. Yeah. I, this was a very enjoyable, I thought you asked great questions and um, I hope it'll be helpful to your OTs. And, uh, yeah, for sure. You. And thank you for, you know, doing the work to pave this path for hopefully what will be many other states to follow. And see a lot of transformation in the future. So, sounds good. Thank you. And that's our episode for today. Thank you all so much for joining us and supporting our work at Therapy Insights. We really appreciate it that you tune in to listen. If you like this conversation and our focus on interdisciplinary collaboration through the lens of person-centered care, you will love Therapy Insights, where we offer tons of resources from patient education handouts to therapy materials, article summaries, and continuing education courses, all for SLPs, OTs, CODAs, PTs, and PTAs. You can check it out at therapyinsights.com, and we'll see you next time.